You know, as a pastor, I just want you all to know, I, um, you know, as a, you want to feed people well, and and I, that I, I'm trying. All right, that's my that's my heart's desire. I want to feed you well, which means we need to have a good menu. We can't just always eat ice cream. You with me? Sometimes we got to mix some green beans in there. I'm preaching on some green beans today. All right, we're going to have some green. So all of you are like, I don't like stuff that's green. Shut up and eat your food. All right, you need it. You're not going to be formed properly. All right, you know, most of the time we leave here and we're like, yeah, and I just want you to know I want us to leave here. Yeah, this should be, this should be a place where the good news is the good news. Amen? And the good news means we have a lot of laughter and joy and passion in our hearts, and we leave here like, yes, I can't believe I get to be a part of what God's doing in the earth. But there are also times, and, and this is going to be one of those seasons, I can't think of a of a more profound season in the calendar than what we're experiencing right now. And in, in the midst of an America that's becoming increasingly trivial uh, and superficial, uh, I do not want to, gl- to gloss over and just tell us all what wonderful people we are during this, during this resurrection season when there's a cross that screams that something was seriously the matter. And uh, you can turn to your neighbor and say, I think it was you, all right? Just tell them that. Uh, Guilty. So today, we're going to start to unpackage some of this amazing, rich theology. And I, I'm saying this because sometimes our church services are geared toward the application of the good news of the gospel, which we should be applying it, amen? That's why it's good news to lost people. But sometimes we pause and the application is this way. Uh, we just want to see the glory of God. We want, to, we want to stand in awe of the mercy of Jesus. We want to stand in awe of the cross. We want to stand in awe of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of churches that don't ever talk about the blood. Uh, we want to be seeker sensitive, right? And seeking people don't like to talk about gory things like blood. I just want you to know we're going to talk a lot about blood. Because when you take the blood out of Christianity, you have nothing left. Uh, And I want us to look at the horror of the cross, at the agonies of the cross, at the slaughter. Revelation tells us the slaughter of the Lamb of God. I mean, slaughter is a graphic word. It's a bloody word. And uh, and I don't ever want to be ashamed of the blood of Jesus Christ. Where would we be without the power that's in the blood to cover our sin, to set us free? I just got to say this to you. You know, first service, a man came up to me who has been free from alcohol. Praise the Lord. Amen free from alcohol, he had a serious drinking problem, and he said, Pastor, Pastor, I was out in, at an event on St. Patty's Day, and how I many of you know St. Patrick was like a stinking awesome apostolic, prophetic, signs and wonders powerhouse, and we've turned him into a drunk. If we had a St. Patty's Day parade, it should be a, a healing service for miracles to happen. That's what we should have for St. Patty's Day. But this man just said, Pastor, Pastor, and he was just praising the Lord for you guys, for the Lord, for the church, and he said, you know what, Uh, I was at this event on St. Patty's Day, and one of my friends came walking in with two cases of beer, and I started shaking, and and, and I, I told him, I just have to get out of here, I have to get out of here. Now listen, I have to get out of here is a sign of supernatural strength. It's, I don't want to be a part of being sucked into this bondage again. Jesus has set me free from this. And this man made a a good run. I gave him a big hug. I mean, you know, God's strength is perfected through our weakness, but his strength. And when you're confronted with bondage 
and you realize the blood of Jesus is paid so you don't have to wallow in the filth like a pig any longer. He decided, I don't want to be a pig. I'm going to get out of here. Uh, thank God he's delivered us from our pig nature by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that. If I haven't offended you yet, hold on. The gospel will be offensive to you. I promise you, you'll have many opportunities this morning to be offended. But don't take up the opportunity. Receive the word with gladness. Over the next four weeks, we're going to focus on a passage of Scripture that has been called the greatest chapter in the whole Old Testament. I mean, that's a pretty strong boast. Greatest chapter in the whole Old Testament. That should get your attention. The Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. I love this. The Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. How many of you know Mount Everest is the highest of the peaks? And when we get to Isaiah 53, we are at the highest of the peaks. Let me put a parenthetical comma here because I want to also say welcome to the Clays, Pastor Jeff and Raquel, all the way from Ohio. You guys are doing an amazing work. Jeff and Jeff and Angie with you as well. Thank you guys. We love all of you. Give them a big hand. Mwah, mwah, mwah. I always like to honor. I always like to honor pastors. All right, back to the text. Nowhere in all of the Old Testament does the gospel of Jesus shine more clearly than in Isaiah 53. If you just had Isaiah 53, you could get a picture of the beauty of the season that we're living in and what Jesus did to secure the salvation of his bride. This is, this is stunning. 700 years before Jesus came into the world, God opens the eyes of the prophet Isaiah to see the very heart of Christ's saving work. Now let's just pause right here. How many of you know only the Holy Spirit could show a man a, a prophetic picture of something that was about to happen seven centuries down the road? So as we're looking at Isaiah 53 today, please stand in awe of the sovereign purpose and providence of God to declare something that was going to happen 700 years before it happened, and it did. You should, and we're, looking, we're looking backwards from the cross, right, waiting for the second coming. We have the benefit of all the New Testament and all the life of Jesus and everything that he did for us. We have the ability to look back, and we should, we should be absolutely stunned by the prophetic accuracy that came through this man, Isaiah, as he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How many of you know there's like 300 different Old Testament prophecies, I think conservatively, that point to Jesus? All of them fulfilled in Christ. If anybody would doubt that Jesus is who he said he is, just the Old Testament prophecy that Jesus Christ fulfilled should put an end to that. But the problem is not our heads. The problem is our wicked hearts. And that's always been the problem. It's not been that there's not enough evidence. There's a preponderance of evidence. The problem is our wicked hearts do not want to embrace Jesus for who he is. That's why the cross, that's why we're going to unpack the beauty of that in the weeks to come. Isn't it amazing that at the very heart of Isaiah 53 is one of the foundational doctrines of our faith that's also under assault right now, and that is the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ that the Lamb of God took your place and my place on the cross and absorbed the righteous wrath of God, the judgment of God in our place to pay for our sins. Um, that is under assault today, but we're going to see in the weeks to come that that is at the very heart of what the gospel means. 
fact, Isaiah 53 is considered a summary of all the gospel narratives. It's the most quoted or most alluded to chapter in the entire New Testament. So how many of you know this is an important piece of inspired scripture? And so I felt like it was a worthy text for our reflection and our study during this incredibly precious season of Christ's passion. Now here's what we're going to do. There's 12 verses in Isaiah 53. We've got four gatherings before we celebrate Resurrection Sunday or leading up to Resurrection Sunday. Today I'm going to talk about our treason. I'm just going to warn you, this message this morning is not a feel-good message. It's a feel-bad message. If anyone leaves here feeling good, you miss the message. I'm just warning you. Pastor, why did you say it that way? Well, because the good news isn't good news until we're fully uh, 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 you know, aware of the bad news. Today is a bad news Sunday, but the good news is coming. Hallelujah. So hang in with me, all right? We're going to talk about the great transfer that took place uh, with Jesus and us next week. We're going to talk about the tragedy of the cross on Good Friday. And finally, we're going to talk about the triumph of the cross on Easter Resurrection Sunday. So let's begin today. Isaiah chapter 53. I want you to read along with me the first three verses. You can follow along on the screen or crack your Bibles open and follow in your, in your Bible. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and he was rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. And he was despised, and we did not care. The prophet opens up with a powerful question, which really establishes and highlights our lost condition. He says, who has believed our message? And to whom has this, uh, the, the Lord revealed his powerful arm? In other words, God has sent his son. God has sent the Messiah. God has sent our Savior. Here's the question, who listened to him? And here's the answer, not very many people. Not very many people. In fact, John highlights the problem of unbelief. John chapter 12, verses 37 and 38. But despite all the miraculous signs, this was the demonstration of the powerful arm of the Lord. Despite all of the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people, everybody say most. Most of the people still did not believe him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. And here he goes back, John goes back and quotes from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? So again, in spite of all the powerful demonstration of God's arm, so to speak, uh, through Jesus Christ, the anointed one, uh, astounding signs and wonders, the people by and large still reject Christ's message. Look again at John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He came into uh, the very world he created. So here God, the creator, Jesus, the creator of the universe, steps into tiny planet Earth in human form, and the Bible says that this world in which he created, this world didn't recognize him he came to his own people and his own people even rejected him so here we're introduced to the problem and here's the problem in a nutshell we are all rebel subjects we are traitors we're guilty of treason i mean you know the greatest sin a a citizen can commit against their nation is high treason 
It's the selling out of your country. It is the, it is the traitorous rebellion and turning of your back on your own nation and leading to its uh, subversion. All right, that, that, that gets you a death penalty. We are all guilty of a treasonous revolt against the king of glory. We are rebel subjects. Every single one of us is a rebel traitor. That's what God sees us as. We're guilty of treason against our king. And our sin is threefold. How many know in the Bible it says out of the testimony of three witnesses something is confirmed? Well, I'm building, I'm, I'm prosecuting myself and you this morning, all right? Not often in court do you have the prosecutors actually trying to condemn himself, but I'm trying to show our blood guiltiness this morning. How many of you know, the, you also heard this expression, three strikes, you're out. Well, I'm going to present three strikes, all right? I'm a pitcher. I'm throwing a mean fastball, and none of you are going to get near it, all right? We're going to go back to the bench in humiliation this morning if I succeed, all right? So that's, that's the plan. Um, let's take a look at the three strikes against us. First of all, we rejected his words or his message. We rejected the message that came through Jesus Christ. How many of you know Jesus was the perfect embodiment of grace and truth together? There is nothing, you know, the Bible talks about a word fitly spoken. How many of you have ever been guilty of putting your foot in your mouth? All right, Jesus never put his foot in his mouth. How many of you have ever said the wrong thing at the wrong time? Okay, Jesus never did that. This is what's beautiful about the Lord's message. He always said the right thing in the right tone, in the right way, to the right people at the right time. How many of you know that also involves truth? There's nothing worse than someone who's such a coward that they won't stand up for what's right and tell you the truth in the face of opposition. Well, how many of you know Jesus was not a coward? Jesus never shied from the truth. But there was a perfect balance in the way that he always delivered the message. And we see it like the woman caught in adultery. Of course, we didn't deal with all the other men that were caught in adultery, but we have the woman here. And Jesus recognizes all the stuff she's dealing with, and he forgives her in such a beautiful way. And then he speaks the truth to her and says, make sure you get up and stop living the way that you're living because I love you and this is going to destroy your life. I don't know about you, but many times we can whitewash the outside, and on the inside we might be raging with anger, but on the, on the outside we're just, hey, praise the Lord, how are you? I'm good. Bless you. On the inside you're like, what a jerk. Anybody know what I'm talking about there, all right? Now, look, some of you are getting more holy now. I know what you're talking about. No, I know you know what I'm talking about. Listen, think about this for a minute. The message and the messenger. Jesus never once had a wicked thought cross his mind ever. Jesus never once did anything wrong to anybody ever. <laughs> Jesus' message was life. And everybody that had ears to hear and latched onto that were transformed. And the Bible's full of all those people that were transformed by his message. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn us all. He came into the world to bring life. He came in to bring forgiveness. He did not come heavy-handed as he could have. He did not come to squash us. He came to lift us up. He said, how about this? His message was so beautiful. He said, if you're bruised, I'm not going to break you off. And if you're a smoldering wick, I'm not going to snuff you out. I am going to be so gentle with you. And yet the Bible says we rejected the message. We wanted nothing to do with the message. 
The Bible says the word of the Lord is flawless. The word of the Lord is true. The word of the Lord is right. From the Lord's mouth come knowledge and understanding. In fact, he is the epitome of truth with a capital T. Whatever Jesus says about reality is true. Whatever Jesus thinks about a situation is true. Whatever words spill out of his mouth are absolute truth. And we have no appetite for truth. I find this amazing that even the demons in hell, even the demons attest that this man speaks the truth. This man is the Holy One of God. This man is the Son of God. Even the demons in hell attest to the message, but they fail to embrace the message personally, just like we do. So we rejected his message. Strike number one. We rejected his works or his miracles. Strike number two. You know, the Bible says in Acts 2.22, God publicly endorsed Jesus by doing powerful miracles and wonders and signs among the people. Every time Jesus heals somebody or breaks the power of Satan off of somebody's life, it is a public validation where God says, that's my son. Listen to him. Hear him. In fact, you remember when God screamed out from heaven, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Every miracle, every miracle was an attestation of the, the ordination, the blessing, the endorsement of God over his son. And you may say, well, pastor, that's cool, but how, well, how many miracles did Jesus do? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. John's gospel ends by telling us that there, there were so many miracles that Jesus performed that all of the books in the world uh, could not contain what could have been written about him. Now think about it. We just have a snapshot. I mean, I mean, no, Jesus is bigger than the book. We have a snapshot. That's what the Bible is. It's a snapshot. Now it's enough to get us to heaven, to get us saved, and it's enough to paint a picture of Jesus that's worthy of our full endorsement and love and worship. But it's a snapshot. Everywhere Jesus went, the Bible says, he went around doing good, healing all of those who were oppressed by the devil. And how many of you know, even after the miraculous signs and wonders, people still rejected Jesus and turned and went away. Which is why, can I just say this? We're, we're a church that believes in signs and wonders and miracles. We should be contending for signs and wonders and miracles. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not lost his power or his desire to heal. But can I tell you this? We need to wake up because if we think just because we see someone getting healed, revival is going to break out and everybody's going to fall on their face and worship Jesus. Why would that happen now? If it didn't happen then. Signs and wonders are not the cure-all. In fact, sometimes signs and wonders drive people deeper in their rebellion and pride and resistance to God. That's the testimony of history. Third strike, we rejected his person. In other words, we rejected him personally. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot think of anybody that would be more desirable to be around and to love and to spend time with than Jesus unless you were a religious person they didn't like him very much but you know what broken wicked perverted hurting hopeless people love Jesus in fact he was a friend of sinners that was the only bad thing the Pharisees could come up with to accuse him of he's a friend of sinners 
You know why sinners like Jesus? Because he's so beautiful. Because he spoke the truth and he loved them at the same time. Because he had the power to set people free. You know, there's something beautiful about the person of Jesus. How about this? He's perfect in thought, word, and deed. He's the sinless lamb of God. He's, he's beautiful in his holiness. He's, he's beautiful because he's just so good. Are you ever around people that you just love being around because they're just so good? They're just so kind. They're just so thoughtful that you're just like, well, I could spend all day with that person. They're just so wonderful. That's Jesus, and yet the Bible says we rejected his person. So we rejected his message. We rejected the miracles. We rejected him as a person. I mean, you know, that's three pretty serious strikes. So we move to verse 2. And in verse 2, we see this rejected servant that Isaiah begins to give us a glimpse of. The Bible says, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender shoot like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Jesus was the rejected suffering servant. Now, the question I want to ask this morning is, what were the reasons we rejected him? Let's take a look at, at three reasons we rejected him. First reason, Jesus is unknown. Jesus was a nobody who came from nowhere. When you look at Jesus' background, it gives hope for all of us this morning, all right? Jesus' background is unspectacular at best. Let's take a look at this. Jesus came from an insignificant family. How I many you know Joseph and Mary were not part of the ruling class? They were not part of the wealthy class. They were not part of any class. They were kind of just nobodies. They were little humble people. But in God's eyes, they were big people. Joseph heard the Holy Spirit. He obeyed God. He was an honorable man. Mary was so sensitive to the Holy Spirit. She said, Lord, whatever crazy thing you're trying to do, I have no way to even get my mind around it. But Lord, whatever you want to do, I'm willing. I mean, those are the kind of little nobodies that God loves to use. But that's the little nobody family that Jesus came from. How I many you know he was born in an insignificant place? Not a palace where kings come from, but a simple inn, a stable, a feeding trough. And the honored guests were shepherds who were the absolute lowest people on the totem pole socially in the culture that day. That's the insignificant place Jesus came from. How about this? He also came from nowhere, a little insignificant town called Nazareth. In fact, you remember what Nathaniel said in John 1.46, can anything good come from Nazareth? I've heard people say that about Lake County before, you know, which gives me, <laughs> gives me hope. That if, if the Son of God could come from Nazareth, and anything good come from Nazareth, I mean, you know, we got hope for revival in northwest Indiana. We could be a sign and a wonder to a lost world. Come on. Point is, Jesus came from nowhere, from nobody in an insignificant background, but it gets worse. He came from a despised province. He came from Lake, no, he came from Galilee. Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Jesus was the best kept secret ever born. Nobody expected him to come from anywhere, any, certainly any of these places. That's why he was a nobody. He had no royal birth. He had no social status. He had no family nobility, no formal education. He was a simple, hardworking carpenter who built stuff for 30 years in Nazareth. He had no social connections with anybody that mattered. He wasn't part of the elite crowd. He wasn't one of the important people. In fact, the Bible says he was a tender root 
They came out of a very dry ground. That word in the Hebrew suggests that Jesus was a sucker plant. You you know when the little sucker plants start growing up on your vine, what do you do with them? You lop them off because they're insignificant. Jesus was an insignificant, fragile, tender shoot growing up in incredibly dry ground, hardened by unbelief and sin with no hope whatsoever of ever amounting to anything. That was how the world saw him. In fact, let me just summarize this. Jesus was totally irrelevant. Have any of you felt unseen, unnoticed, irrelevant? Guess what? Jesus was irrelevant to the world and to everybody around him. That's how dark the world was. So he's unknown. Let me go to the second amazing point about Jesus, which is why we rejected him. He's unremarkable. The Bible says there's nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Isn't this amazing? You would never find Jesus on the cover of GQ magazine. Jesus would not be on anybody's sexiest man alive list because Jesus was utterly unremarkable in the flesh. Now what's crazy is, The Bible goes at great lengths to tell us about the beauty and the physical fitness of many of the characters woven into the story of redemption. Let me give you some examples. The Bible says about Rachel, she had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. The Holy Spirit put that in there. In other words, he wanted us to know Rachel was beautiful, not only in her face, but her, 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 uh, yeah, her body. There we go. All right, hallelujah. I'm I'm getting, I'm getting all choked up here this morning. It's in the Bible. She had, she had a nice figure. All right. Joseph was handsome and well-built because he had a Y membership and he used it often, Genesis 39. So the Bible tells us Joseph was a good-looking guy and he had some muscles, all right? He had a nice V body, all right? Just trying to help you guys out. David was a fine-looking young man, the Bible says. And Abigail was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Jesus, the King of kings, the fairest of the fair, the desire of the nations, is altogether normal and unspectacular. How many of you know there's hope for all of us? Amen? I, aren't you glad Jesus didn't come like the stud muffin or whatever? You know, he... He came, like if Jesus was a bird, he would not be a peacock. He would be a simple little brown sparrow. How many brown sparrows do we have gathered here today, all right? In other words, Jesus identifies with humanity. Jesus, the ordinary man. Jesus, the unspectacular man. Jesus, not the guy with the great shape, the great form, the great figure, the great looks. Just Jesus, the one that kind of... We lost him in the crowd because he didn't stick out. I mean, you know, too, the Messiah that they expected was, did not come looking like Jesus. Messiahs look like powerful figures, strong, tall, tall, dark, and handsome figures. I mean, they're people that have commanding presence. They're people that are, are incredible, uh, uh, charismatic personalities that move us. Jesus did not look like a winner at all. If you saw Christ, you didn't go, hey, there's our king. That's going to be our deliverer. No, he didn't fit the, fit the bill for that at all. In fact, when he walked down the street, you wouldn't even turn your head and notice him. 
He would just be simply, like I said, lost in the crowd. And yet here's the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, the only sinless, perfect person to ever walk on planet Earth. And the sad fact is the world didn't even recognize him, wouldn't even look upon him. To the world, Jesus was unworthy of our attention. So he's unknown. That's strike one again, unremarkable. That's another reason we reject him. Third reason is this. Jesus is simply unpopular. Look at verse 3. He was despised. Oh, strong language, despised, rejected, or forsaken. A man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised. And look at the last line there. We didn't even care. You know, when we talk about being forsaken, that's a, that's a powerful word. It means that the people closest to you who should love you the most end up turning their back on you. You know, there's a lot of countries today where when you convert to Christianity, your family disowns you. They, they throw you out of the family. In fact, in some uh, religions of the world, they will kill you to honor uh, their God because you uh, converted to Christianity. The pain of being forsaken by people that you love. There might be some of you in this room, once you started drinking the Jesus Kool-Aid, your family started going, what in the world happened to you? You didn't get invited to the family parties any longer because you were the oddball. You are the radical. You are the one who, you know, is going way too far with your passion for Jesus. I mean, you know, this is stunning to me. Jesus' own family thought he was nuts. Saying, seriously? Oh, all right, I'll go to the Bible. Look at John 7, verse 5. Even his brothers didn't believe him. Now, I mean, you know, who would like to grow up and be a sibling of Jesus? I mean, when Jesus is your brother... All of y'all are black sheep of the family, all right? I don't care. I don't care how good you are. Jesus never sinned. He was, a, he was obviously a child, and he was immature, and he grew up in, as normal little kids grew up, but Jesus didn't sin. He didn't have a mean bone in his body. I mean, his brothers and sisters should have been falling at his feet, worshiping their siblings, saying, you are the Son of God, because you don't act like none of us. But you know, his own family, the Bible said, rejected him. Look at this next one. Mark 3, 21, when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. Like, let's get Jesus out of the scene here because he's embarrassing us. He's out of his mind. How many of you would like your own flesh and blood to say you're crazy? You're out of your mind. That's what they did to Jesus. John 1, verse 11, he came to his own people, and even they rejected him. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translate this phrase, uh, they hid their face from him. Uh, and it's in the perfect tense, which this is what it's saying. They turned away their faces and they remained in that position. Have you ever as been trying to you know, discipline one of your kids and you're trying to talk to them and they're, oh, they're so mad at you and they, they do that. And you're like, hey, look at me, look at me. And you're, you know, how I many you know this is what we did to Jesus? He, he so offended us and we so rejected him, we turned away in rebellion and we kept in that fixed position of defiance against God, even as he's reaching out to us through the hands of Christ to redeem us and bring us back to himself. You know, the word in the King James Version, it's the word esteem. And this word is an accounting term. If any of you do appraisals or uh, stuff like that in the real estate business, what do people do? They come out to your house and you get your house appraised and they walk through with their notebook and they're checking out the house in great detail. What are they trying to do? They're trying to affix a value to your property. 
This is an accounting kind of thing, all right? We're looking at the numbers. How many of you have ever seen the Olympics? You know, they do the, the floor routines, and, and it used to be that they have all the little uh, machines over there, and when the gymnast is done, they're all waiting, and they're standing with their coach, all right? They're waiting. What's happening? That panel of judges is doing an appraisal of your routine, and they're going to attach a numerical value to how well you did, and of course, everybody wants to get the perfect 10, Right? Here's the deal. If you could imagine all of humanity sitting behind one of those desks and watching Jesus do the floor routine, watching him go through life, watching his message, watching his miracles, watching his power and display, seeing the glory of the perfect Lamb of God, and Jesus gets done, and he stands there next to his Father waiting for our appraisal, our estimation of his worth, and across the board, zero. Zero. That was the human response to the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In fact, Martin Luther translated this verse, we estimated him at nothing. We counted him a zero. We didn't give him a second thought. That's how much we valued him. Can I just tell you that in a lost world full of people who are far from God, it is a miracle of God's grace to give us a heart that properly values and esteems Jesus in the place of value that he should have. St. Augustine said that the root of sin was what he called disordered love. What he meant by that was that we love a million things more than we love what we should love most. And that's Jesus. We love our money. We love our jobs. We love our, our prestige. We love our status. We love whatever. We love tacos. We love pizza. We love popcorn. We love sweets. We love chocolate. We love coffee. Uh, we love a lot of things. And the problem is, as sinners, we always put the wrong thing on the top of the list. And let me just say this. For people that have never been encountered by Jesus, Jesus isn't even on the list. I want to just feel the weight of this. The one who is most valuable we esteem as worth nothing that is called the weight of sin and guilt that's upon the human race what should be valued the most we we attribute the least value to you remember that parable jesus told about the man who found the treasure in the field and he realized that treasure is worth Everything that I can possibly get my hands on to sell, because if I can buy the field and get the treasure, I will get that which is most precious. Do you know that being born again is simply a matter of having a change of value? And the things that you used to think were not that important are now really important. And the things that you used to esteem as really valuable, you're going to put, spend your whole life pursuing those things, you realize. As Paul said, those things are rubbish. The things that I once pursued, even with religious zeal, as Paul did with that pharisaical zeal, he said, I now consider it garbage. It takes God to help us to see what's really valuable. It takes God to create within your heart not just the ability to see Jesus as the Son, 
but to love Jesus as the Son and to treasure what is most valuable. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we can't do this apart from the grace of God. We will constantly run back to a million other idols in our lives. That's why it blessed me so much that this man this morning, who gets here early, and he always sits right there, and he loves this place. Here's why he loves this place. He realizes the bankrupt mess and filth from which he lived in, and now Christ has taken off the veil, and he sees the beauty of the Lord, and he experiences a taste of freedom, and he says, why would I go back to the bottle when I can experience Christ? And he's shaking because the temptation is there, but he runs the opposite direction because he loves what is more lovely, and and he values what is most valuable. And listen, only the Holy Spirit can do that in you. Otherwise, the Bible says we're like dogs. They go back and we keep eating our puke over and over again. Because here's the truth about you and I by nature. We love puke more than we love the Son of God. We would rather eat vomit than fully yield ourselves to Jesus because that's how in bondage we are to sin. What a graphic picture. I hope I'm offending your sensibilities because that's who we are apart from the mercy of God. And here's the deal. And this is what I want to drive home because that cross is a religious artifact that means nothing apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ and apart from you putting yourself in the value position where you are. Here's the deal. You're you're a rebel and you're a traitor, and I am too, and we're guilty before God. And I want you to hear this. We're hopeless and we're helpless. Hopeless in that if God doesn't do something, we have absolutely zero hope. And helpless in that that this, you're not going to fix yourself ever. Jesus came to fix you. And that's the sovereign love and mercy of God. And next week, we're going to talk about that transference of guilt and shame and brokenness and vomit-eating nature of ours that Jesus took upon himself on the cross so that we could have a radical shift in nature and that we can begin putting up tens instead of zeros. You know, what is worship? Worship is the coming together, and what do you, and what do, you do when you bring your worship? I got, to just, I got to go off track here just a little bit. I got a golden retriever. All right. It's actually not mine. I'm the grand. I'm the grandparent of the golden retriever. It's it's Alicia's dog, but I act like it's mine because I'm kind of fond of them. All right, but it's her dog. She's got to clean up the you know what in the yard. All right. So anyway, that comes with ownership. Every morning, this dog, when he hears me, he comes running to meet me, and he doesn't just shake his tail. He shakes his whole body. It's like it's like a hula hoop. You know, you kind of. He shakes his whole body, and the tail just goes whack, 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 whack. It sounds like a baseball bat beat, whatever it hits. But, it, but here's what I've noticed. Because this dog's nature is to retrieve, he never comes into my presence without something in his mouth. It's hilarious. He brings shoes. He brings socks. Dirty underwear left on the ground. He, bring, he never comes empty-handed into my presence. And I'm telling you, I see that dog. Now, this is a dog, all right? 
But how many know God can speak to you through the simplest things? I'm the master. I'm the alpha dog, all right? Lower dog, alpha dog, God figure, human being figure. The dog never comes into my presence without bringing me something in his mouth. And he brings it with joy. So what, what is worship? It's the bringing of something that's valuable. And it's the releasing it with all of our might. It's the wagging of our tails with all of our might and passion and joy. And listen, you can't do that until you've had a radical encounter with the cross. The Bible says we despise Jesus. I want, can we let this sink? If I looked at Kevin, my brother here, and I said, bro, I just want you to know, I despise you. You know, you can't say that. I'm a liar. That's right. It's true. He's a liar because I love you. But if I, disp- if I said, like, I don't really care for Kevin. No, no, that's, that's my. If I look at him and I say, I despise You can't even let the word come off of your mouth without like something welling up inside of you. How many know there's this powerful emotion with despising people? The Bible says Jesus was not just unnoticed. He was despised. I mean, how do you despise God? How do you despise someone who spent their entire life from morning till night demonstrating the kindness and goodness of God to people everywhere we went? The Bible says we despised him. And I want you to personalize that. I despised him with my attitude, my action, my love for other things. We rejected him. We forsook him. I want to encourage somebody here this morning. Jesus was aware and experienced the depths of sorrow. In fact, the Bible says deepest grief. I look out at some of you. I know the grief that many people in this room have tasted personally. Aren't you grateful that the Son of God drank the cup of not just grief, the deepest grief. Not because he needed to or he did anything wrong or he experienced anything or he caused anything wrong, uh, but because he was willing to drink the cup of the deepest grief so he could identify with our pain and our suffering. But look at what our response was. In fact, that word deepest grief in the Hebrew refers to sickness and disease. Jesus cares about the curse that's brought disease and sickness upon planet Earth, and his goal is ultimately to break all of that off of us and to bring us life to the fullest. But the Bible says this, we turned our backs on the Lord, and we looked the other way. Many of the commentators on this particular verse, they said that what he's alluding to is the fact that lepers back in Bible days lepers were required by law to, to, to hide their faces when they came around anybody, and they were, they were called to, or required to call out, I am unclean, unclean, unclean. And people would turn away from the leper because leprosy had a way of disfiguring a person and making them uh, unpleasant to look upon. And so when you, if you could think of something that's just hideous, gross, painful to look at, some of you don't like to see blood. You know, somebody gets cut open, you know, oh, you turn away. Some of you, when you get a, go to get a shot, what do you do? You're not going to sit there and go, oh, cool, stick that deeper. No, you turn, you turn your head away, right? Check this out. When Jesus was on planet Earth, it says wicked people, sinners like us, turned away in disgust as if he were a leper. As if he were a leper. 
And this last one gets me. Does anybody value loyalty? I, I love loyalty. And I love military people. All of you that are veterans out here. I love it when military folks stand up at attention when a commanding officer, right, a superior officer enters the room because it's a sign of respect, it's a sign of loyalty, it's a sign of reverence. How many of you know the thing that gets me the most about our sin is that the Bible says we look the other way. When he was despised, we didn't even care. You know, I don't know about you, but what gets me, like, if there's un- injustice happening, like, I'm going to speak, I'm gonna speak to, to the men in here. I'm going to call out your man card. If you saw somebody, an innocent victim, being assaulted by somebody, what would you do? You saw, you know, a, a man uh, violating a woman, beating somebody up, whatever, and you're out in public. What would you do? I'll tell you what a lot of cowards do. They, they do this. I'll tell you what a man of God would do. You just jump right into the situation, and you try to, to demonstrate compassion for the victim, and you try to stop whatever's happening. Do you not? Is that not what, what manhood calls us to do? And yet the Bible says we look at the sinless son of God being mistreated, rejected, despised, forsaken. And the Bible says we look away, and I want you to hear this, because we don't care. We don't care. I can't, I can't think of a worse indictment than when someone just says, I don't care, whatever. You're like a dead zombie when you have that. You, you, lost, you lost all sense of direction, purpose. You don't care. That's the worst thing that can happen is when you lose your ability to care. And yet the, the Bible says as sinners we look upon Jesus, all of his suffering, everything they went through, and we just yawn and look the other way because we don't give a freaking care. Guess what? We need a Savior. And here's what I love. When Jesus enters your life, you start to care. You care about people. You care about the world. You care about government. You care about education. You care about everything that we should be caring. You care about your family. You care about your spouse. You care about the Lord's reputation. You care about the church. You care about things you should care about. Because God begins to infuse his heart in your heart. And this is what I love. You know, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about a bunch of folks who, who began to care and love and feel like Jesus and live for Jesus, gave their lives for Jesus. And it says this about their lives. This world was not worthy of them. I want to be one of those kind of people. You know, when it, when it says uh, that we despised him, that word, I love the way the message paraphrase says it because it's actually very accurate to the Hebrew. It says this, we treated Jesus like scum. Isn't that strong? You, sir, are scum. I want nothing to do with you. I despise you. Those words might not have come out of our mouth, but those words were certainly in our heart. They were in our actions. You are like scum. And what does the Bible say? What, what the Apostle Paul said about his apostleship? He said, we are considered the scum of the earth, the offscouring of planet earth. In other words, those who have been the Lord's finest servants this side of eternity are often treated like scum. And what did Jesus say about it? When that happens to you, rejoice. Because you're mine. This is why, again, never feel sorry for a martyr. 
I need to hear that. All those poor people, why didn't Jesus intervene? I remember when ISIS was going on, we're watching families, their heads being chopped off in front of their kids. Uh, horrible, horrific things happening. Uh, and we go, whoa, why would God allow that? Listen to me. It's the ultimate privilege, this side of eternity, to demonstrate with your life that Jesus is worthy of it all. Because you went from giving Jesus a zero to giving Jesus everything. And if you think you're going to stand before God someday and you're going to stand and gaze into the eyes of the most beautiful human being who ever walked on planet Earth and he's not going to absolutely know every sacrifice, every pain, every heartache, he's not going to be, you're not going to be like, Jesus, why weren't, no, 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 you're going to be like, Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you for the privilege of counting you worthy of everything, including life itself. Only Jesus can make a person like that. We are cowards by nature. We don't care by nature. We are selfish by nature. We have zero value for things that we should value. I'm, just, I'm, I'm on a meddling roll here because I got more time to meddle in a second. We added that time. I, I won't anyway, but <laughs> listen, I want to I ask you this question. Who is the most valuable to be treasured person in my life on planet Earth as a human being based on covenant. Say that again. So where should I be making investments on a daily basis? In my wife. Like in other words, if our marriage is not really going so great, maybe I should show up and make an investment in my marriage because my actions determine what I value. But I know men, they'll stay home and watch the loser bears on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> You'll put more valuable in a loser than you will in your wife. Because listen, because here's why. Because you're a sinner. And only Jesus can help you value what you're supposed to value. Otherwise, we'll come up with a million other things. Or, you know, we just don't care. Every time you don't care about something you should care about, you're, you should hear the, the nails pounding into the cross. Because your lack of caring about things you should care about is a sign of how fallen and broken and selfish and dead you are. And I, I'm, I, 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 I'm in this. I'm, I'm the prosecutor prosecuting myself this morning. Guilty as charged, Lord. Stand to your feet. I want to pray for you this morning. Can we just surrender ourselves fully, at least as fully as we're capable, with all of our might, all of our power? As we stand here, I know many of you I'm speaking to are lovers of Jesus. We're all recipients of that grace of God on our lives. And we're born again. And get, praise God, he's given us a new heart. But let's just thank him right now this morning for the cross. Thank him for his willingness to endure all of this from us when he could have just spoken a word and vaporized us all in a millisecond. But he, he endured it all for the joy that was set before him. You're part of the joy. You're part of the reason why we're celebrating this season of death and burial and resurrection and ascension. So Lord, we just pause before you. We recognize your beauty. We recognize your worth. We recognize your work. 
We thank you for the miracles which were an endorsement from heaven that you are the Son of God. We thank you for your message which gives us life and life abundantly. God, may we never be numbed to where we simply don't care about things we should really, really care about. I pray even this morning, Holy Spirit, awaken us, polish us, sharpen us, ignite our hearts to love Jesus in the manner that he's worthy of of our love. Lord, we pray this all in humble reliance upon you and upon the Holy Spirit. Help us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.